Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. Not everybody's going to like you. It's fine. The most important thing is when you stand in front of that mirror that you like you, that you hold your truth, that it's self-evident that you are created to be the person you are, and that if you're willing to stand in that truth, it's incredible what happens. Hi, I'm Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I discover by diving in and discussing what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so fearless. I talk to folks in depth from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, meditation monks, CEOs, military leaders, and survivors of incredibly traumatic childhoods like my guest today, Michael Anthony, a.k.a. Michael Unbroken. We're going to talk about how he became unbroken by overcoming extreme childhood trauma. Oh my God, his story is incredible to become a powerful voice of resilience and can do through his unbroken podcast and his book by that title. Michael now works with adult survivors of childhood trauma who thought they were stuck and he's helped them learn to believe and love themselves and eradicate regrets. Michael, thanks for joining me today. So give us a little sense of your background. I mean, I read up on you and, you know, uh, come across uh, your stuff. This sounds like you had a pretty traumatic childhood and and part of your story is how you overcame that uh, to become unbroken. And it's kind of cool because I'm unbeatable, you're unbroken. So together we're, what's the word if you combine Unstoppable. Unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> Uncomparable. Yeah. <laughs> Trauma doesn't discriminate. Yeah, it does not. It's way more of a problem or an issue than anyone is willing to admit. And there's probably a lot of people here who think they're not a victim of trauma when they really are. Yeah, man. You know, growing up, the home was super violent mother, drug addict, alcoholic, I'll create a little bit of just a warning before I get in because it's dark, man. It's like very dark. When I was four years old, my mother was a drug addict and alcoholic, and she actually cut off my right index finger. On purpose? Yes. Jesus. And you think about this and, you know, Mark, that's the response that I get. It's like hurt people, hurt people and healed people, healed people. And, you know, growing up in Indianapolis in Indiana, it was a very different world than we live in in the 80s. And she married my stepfather, who was super abusive. I mean, dude, he'd kick the shit out of my brothers and I. He put me in the hospital multiple times. It was the mental, emotional, physical abuse, the getting woken up in the middle of the night, dragged into the kitchen and getting beat for putting away wet dishes. That's context, man. That is context. That puts mine to shame. Not that there's any kind of like rank order for trauma, but you know, yeah, like trauma can have, um, you know, a stacking effect, you know, and the more violent and the more intense it is, and also the more over the duration, then, then you can claim that it's going to be a little bit more challenging. It's going to have different impact on you. But at the same time, you know, the jury's out on that. You know, you could have one incident that is not remembered, which could negatively impact you for entire life and cause enormous distress, depression, and even suicidal tendencies, if not actual suicide. And you can have your situation where it's so intense and so overt that you're forced to make a decision. Yes. And that's the thing. I think covert trauma is one of the biggest hidden diseases in our culture. It's the covert, it's the overt stuff that you're like, holy shit, either I go down this path and die or I get my shit together and figure this out. Yeah. And part of what I experienced in your spot on Part of what I experienced as a kid also was the mental and emotional abuse, right? You're not good enough. Nobody loves you. My stepdad would be like, this is why your real dad's never around. You're a piece of shit. And he would just ingrain those things into me. 
And when you understand causation and correlation, which I would later in life, you recognize that we are the sum total of all of our experiences and you can't run from that as much as you want to. And so by the time we were eight years old, I mean, we were deeply impoverished, homeless, food stamps, getting bounced around. And between eight to 12, I lived with over 30 different families, man, just getting popped place to place to place to place. And probably none of them really stable. No, of course not, because you'd be at one place for three days and one day for four and then be at grandma's for a week and then be literally in some person's van overnight. Like it was kind of crazy. You were like a possession just being passed around, you know. And that's exactly what it was. And, And that invalidates you. It made me feel worthless. It made me feel like I don't matter in the world. And on top of that, right, I have a learning disability. Plus, I'm a bedwetter because of obviously. And all these things are happening and transpiring. Well, by the time that I'm 12, my grandmother adopted me because that summer I'd been living in an abandoned house off of 30th in Georgetown by the Indianapolis Raceway, going to big lots on the corner over there, stealing food to survive. And like somehow she found out and she came home. There'd been no electricity, no running water. I'd been in this place for like six weeks and she took me. And, you know, you'd think that'd be a a godsend. And to some extent it was because I finally was out of that environment. My mom had been in a rehab. She just kind of literally disappeared off the face of the earth, didn't tell anyone where she was. And my stepfather and her had had a divorce. So it was just kind of me. And when my grandmother adopted me, you know, I'm biracial, I'm black and white. My grandma's an old racist ass white lady from a town in Tennessee you never heard of. <laughs> Dude, we had, I'm not joking, Mark, we had a copy of Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf, in our living room. Oh my gosh, wow. So now it's massive identity crisis, man. And I started getting high when I was 12, got high for the first time, started popping pills, started doing all these other different things, got drunk when I was 13. That's where it started. And by the time I was 15, I was expelled from school for selling drugs. I'm breaking into houses. I'm stealing cars. I'm running from the cops. I'm getting shot at. We're hurting people. Like, it's like a movie, man. I'm like, what is happening in my life? Grand Theft Auto, man. (laughs) Well, it was Grand Theft Survival, dude. (laughs) I was like, what does it take? You know, that was the environment I grew up in, just trying to survive. How many others were you with in the same situation you know you're running mates so many and how many of them made it through my three childhood best friends have been murdered mark one of them got stabbed to death behind a dumpster one of them got shot in the living room and the other one i just don't even like to talk about and you see this happening and that's like real life dude we would just do whatever it took right and we were like this band of brothers for lack of a better term And it was just trying to figure out how to make it day to day to day because, you know, their parents were beating the shit out of them. They they got kicked out or dropped out of high school. And we're just trying to to figure out this life thing. And I got a call one day. The dean of the school wanted to see me. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm already kicked out. (laughs) And turns out they were going to put me into a last chance program. And in this last chance program, I would learn skills. I would learn life skills, how to write a resume and a cover letter and to build computers. And this is in the early 2000s. And that was really important. And so I took heed of that. I decided to go for it. At that time, I actually put a restraining order on my mother. How old are you now? Like 16, 17? I'm 15 into 16. Yeah. And you can see on my report card, I went from straight F's to straight A's. And I end up being the captain of the wrestling team. And I was dating a cheerleader and life was very different for a period of time. 
last chance program was that something that was like a federal program was it a state program or was it like a non-profit like where did that come from who was funding it and and was it something that a lot of people got you know help from or was it, it was actually specific to my high school which was northwest high school which has now been defunded because it was a dropout factory it was a nonprofit sponsored by goodwill industries actually and so every day we would go to high school and we, dude, this is weird because like kids are wearing jeans and t-shirts and stuff and we had to show up in khakis and polos right so they started training that into us and we got on this other bus we went to a literal goodwill and in the back where they had like these classroom settings created for us we would learn we would do mock interviews with each other and go through the whole thing it was a phenomenal experience that actually set the precedent for what my life would come on a long enough timeline. Yeah. I mean, just the, you know, to pin that point, like it just seems like such an obvious, beneficial and powerful way to really help, you know, the lost souls at a very young age. And I'm wondering why there's not like a, you know, with all the billions and trillions of dollars that we spend on social programs, why this isn't like a federally funded, obvious thing that we do. Yeah. And most of those kids, after we graduated, they went on and they got jobs. They weren't in the street. So most of those kids didn't go to prison, right? It's incredible. Sometimes we'll connect. A lot of them joined the military, which was kind of my path too. Like the one thing I always wanted to do was be a Marine Corps scout sniper, but I actually destroyed my knee my senior year. And even though I rocked the ASVAB, they were like, dude, you're ne we're not letting you in. I only had two dreams as a kid, man. Don't die. Become a scout sniper. That's it. And I blame Tom Berenger for that, by the way. Funny you should say that because that's the image that popped in my mind of Platoon. When you said that, I said, I bet you he watched Platoon and that was where that. It was all the military was. movies. It was that Top Gun. You name it, man. I was buried in that mentality because it's it to me, it felt like freedom. And as a freshman, I was in JROTC for the Navy and it was my path. So I end up not graduating high school because my mom, who got out of rehab, came to live with us again. And within a month, she was back to drinking and popping pills, crashing cars. And again, on my report card, you can watch from straight A's to straight F's. And my girlfriend calls me one day and she's like, you're not graduating. And I was like, fuck. And it was incredibly embarrassing because I had to go to school and I had to confront this. And I stood across from my teacher, Mr. Bush, who told me the most important thing anyone's ever told me. He said, if you want to get by in life, you have to work for it. You can't get by in your charms and your good looks. And he made me go to summer school. And this really weird thing happened in summer school where the teacher just handed me the diploma. He goes, we're done with you. Get out. I was like, oh, well, this is the opposite of everything I just experienced. <laughs> and so I go get this job. I'm working a warehouse. And you can just see the desperation in people's eyes. Like, it's where dreams go to die. And I was putting microchips and motherboards for 12 hours a day on this assembly line. And they fired me. Because why? Because you weren't doing it fast enough? Oh, no, because I was stoned. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, why not? Of course, right? I'd probably be stoned if I was putting microchips and motherboards all day long. It was the only way I could survive. <laughs> and so, so I'm sitting in my car. I'm like, look at your life, man. This was my first rock bottom. Look at your life. You are a loser. You just got fired from a dead-end job. You have no money. What are you doing? 
And I was like, what is the solution for poverty, for homelessness, for abuse? And I was like, oh, it's money, right? It's got to be. And so I made a declaration. I said, I want to make $100,000 a year legally by the time I'm 21. You know, I've been in handcuffs multiple times. I have family in prison for life. I talked to you about my three best friends. And it was just like, if I can figure this out, everything will be different. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Let me ask you a question here just about how your mind works or how the mind works. So you've got all this trauma. You're obviously, your thinking processes are leading to bad outcomes. And so what was that like in that moment or what caused you to like have this separation and this, you know, what I now call metacognitability to think about your thinking and say, you know what, that thinking, you know, is not leading to the good results. And so therefore I can think differently because some people never really come upon that. You know, they just think, well, I am these thoughts. I am these behaviors. I am this identity. And that's what you get. I'm a survivor, man. I'm a warrior. I just have this massive resiliency in me that sometimes, unfortunately, like a lot of people only comes via the rock bottom. And as I sat there, it was just, it was the first time I realized I was tired of myself. I was done with my own bullshit. And it was just like, take action, do something. That story doesn't work anymore for you. And whoever the you was, you didn't identify as that story anymore. And I didn't have the words for it then, being a kid. The only thing I knew is like, this wasn't the track. Like I knew that if I didn't shift something, One of the things that happened, and I don't actually talk about this a lot, but this sparked this memory as we're chatting. We used to go visit my uncle at Pendleton Prison like three to four times a month. And you would just sit there and I'd look at him and and every single day it was reinforced, don't ever be this. And I was on my way there and I just truly was. And I was just like, I'm going to end up dead or in jail. My dream got stripped of me. I did not know what to do after not being able to be a sniper. And so I said, all right, the path is $100,000 legally. And I land a job at 18 and a half working for a fast food joint. And I get into a leadership role, general manager in training. And I got a team of 52 people under me at 18 and a half. What was the company? It was a Wendy's. Those are great paths to learning business management, leadership skills. I'm a big fan of those franchises that hire minimum wage people off the street and teach them how to basic skills. It's phenomenal. And we have fewer and fewer of those opportunities and they're going to all be outsourced to robots someday or automation. It's unfortunate. Like what are the kids that need that kind of opportunity going to do? It's going to be Yeah. And I did need that opportunity. Like look, context, like they were totally throwing me to the wolves because they put me in the busiest store in the entire city where we were doing a million dollars in burgers and fries, man. Like it was chaos. And I knew it wasn't the path. Like, I just knew that this wasn't going to be the thing that led me to that marker, 100,000. And I ended up, after really two years of constant rejection, of trying to work for a corporation, of resumes and interviews and the stuff going nowhere, hundreds of no's. I actually ended up landing a job with a Fortune 10 company. This is, again, no high school diploma, no college education. And I hit my goal. I started making six figures. And then my life turned into a complete disaster. What was that job? I was doing insurance sales. This is pre-Obamacare, and I was helping people get medical insurance. I was licensed in 48 states. 
I was a broker and I was building a book of business. I had this moment recently. I was like, did I make this up? Did I really make $100,000 when I was like 20 years old? I went, I pulled up my old W-2 and it's a little bit of a stretch, but I made $96,000. And what happened was, what happens with a lot of people, money kind of brings out your truth. And by the time that I was 25, I was 350 pounds, smoking two packs a day, drinking myself to sleep, high from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, cheating on my girlfriend, and I was $40,000 in debt. I was everything everyone told me I was going to be. But you weren't in jail or dead, so you had that going for you. I wasn't that far away, though. You know, especially with the health choices and the lifestyle choices and the, the food and drugs I was putting into my body, the late nights, the fifths of, you know, Captain Morgan on Fridays, like it was chaos, man. And I woke up this one particular Saturday after arguably the worst night of my life and I'd put a gun in my mouth. I was done, man. I was done, like just feeling alone in the world, feeling like nobody gets it. Money was supposed to solve all these problems and it didn't. And I'm laying in bed. Keep in mind, I'm 350 pounds. I'm smoking a joint, eating chocolate cake, and I'm watching the CrossFit games, man. <laughs> and if that's not rock bottom, I don't know what is. I really, truly don't. And I, I, when I pulled myself up and I went to the bathroom, I was looking at myself in the mirror and I remember being eight years old. And the water company had come and turned our water off. And it's like a blistering hot Indiana August summer day. And, you know, they're always turning off our water, our heat, electricity. I mean, this is just normal to me. But this one particular day, my mom is like begging this guy not to turn off the water. And he's just doing his job. I go to the backyard. I grab this little blue bucket. I walk across the street to our neighbor's house. I turn on their spigot on the side of their house. And for the first time, I stole water. And I was like, when I'm a grown-up, this will not be my life. And it wasn't in a lot of ways, but in so many ways, I was still that hurt, lost little boy. And as I looked in the mirror, I asked myself a question that literally changed my life forever. I said, what are you willing to do to have the life that you want to have? And the answer was no excuses, just results. And what that meant is I was no longer going to play the victim I was no longer going to fucking blame other people for my decisions, and I was no longer going to negotiate with myself. And 12 years later, I'm talking to you. Let's say someone is listening to this, and they just haul themselves out of bed and go and look themselves in the mirror, and they have that same conversation. And then they're going to say, okay, Michael, what did you do next? What was the very next thing you did after that conversation? Literally in that moment, it was I took those cigarettes and I threw them away. That was step one. I realized something in that moment that I would start to transpire again and again and again in my life and, and also things that I teach people when I coach them and things I talk about is at that moment, at that juncture, you have to give yourself an intense amount of grace. What people don't understand, and this is just my truth about childhood trauma and abuse, dude, it's not this finger that was cut off and the, all the surgeries and the cuts and the burns and getting my head slammed into walls. Like, it's not that stuff that I carried with me. It, it was the theft of identity. Every time that these things happened, my brain made meaning of those experiences. And it said, you're in danger, so don't be you. And you learn to placate. You learn to become a chameleon. 
And the worst part about that is that serves you for a period of time because it keeps you safe when you're eight, when you're 12, when you're 18. And then what happens is you realize like, this no longer serves me to not own my truth, to not be the person I'm capable of being, to not love myself and be compassionate and have empathy and grace and show up and have accountability and do the damn things I said I was going to do. And that space that I want people to hold on to when they start this journey is to recognize that what they're about to do, they've never done before. And they're going to fail a lot. And the four years after that moment was a consummate battle. Like I would take a step forward and 8 million steps backwards because I promise you, I threw those damn cigarettes away about 200 more times, right? <laughs> right. I threw the bottle away more and went to the gym and the whole thing. And it really just started with that declaration of recognizing that you can be your excuses. And you're more than welcome to be. You, most people, you have all the right in the world to be the victim. I will never strip that. I will never take that away from anyone, ever. But you have to make a fucking decision. But if you want to transform, you can't play the victim. That has to be a past identity. You have to transform out of that identity to something else. You can still be proud or not proud, but you can still claim it. Yes. But you can't live it anymore. The other thing that really pops out to me there is, is you recognize early on that just the decision in the matrix, you know, of reality, that decision is everything. And if our minds were powerful enough, it probably, you probably could transform, you know, in a week or two or a month or even a year. But the reality is most of us don't have that kind of mental power and we have to build it slowly and slowly over time. Yes. And it's just through making, you know, this decision, like you said, over and over and over. So make that same decision to come back to that intentionality when you slip and say, you know what? No, these cigarettes are going away again and again and again until they go away for the last time. Yeah. Same thing with the drink. Same thing with the decision not to go to the gym. You just reverse that again and again and again until going to the gym is as normal as waking up. Yes. And then suddenly, for your case, 13 years later or 10 years later or whatever it was, probably more like five or six years later, you're super healthy and like looking back and going, wow, look what I've done. Yeah. People drastically underestimate what they can do in a decade. In the beginning, I would beat myself up all the time about it. I think it was James Clear. I think recently I read an article or something. He said it, people drastically overestimate what they can do in five years underestimate what they can do in five years and drastically overestimate what they can do in one year. Yeah. Something like that. And I, I think that's so true, right? It is. And it's patience, right? And it's the willingness to call heed to the signs when they're in front of you. And it says, this is how you can be special. This is how you can be the hero of your own story. This is the thing that you need. And for me, it became very much about leveraging what was in front of you. And it was like, they weren't really podcasts yet, but they were like, YouTube videos where it was like a guy like Mark Devine on Inside Quest with Tom Bilyeu. And I would sit there and I would consume it. And I would find these books and I would consume them. And I would go to conferences and events. And I would just keep bringing it in, bringing it in, bringing it in. Because the one thing that I, I knew to be true was like, if other people could do it, I could do it too. I think people underestimate how important community and mentorship is even if you're not directly connected to that person. I mean, you've been influenced in my life for a very long time. We just met. But it was because someone made a decision to sit down and have a conversation with you where I started thinking about things like Zen and martial arts and breathing. And that holds true for whatever arena you're willing to step into. And you have to 
be very cautious as well as making sure you're not inputting the wrong information. I'd always been goal-driven. I just was driven towards the wrong goals. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's a very practical view of this, which is, you know, you've got to learn. You got to learn from people who are doing things in a way that you perceive to be in line with your goals, which then, you know, will teach you how to replace and train, retrain yourself out of the behaviors that have led you to where you now perceive this to be a, a not a good place. So that's habituation and learning. The other way to look at it is this kind of theory that I have that, that you know, essentially our minds create everything. It even creates the, you know, our physical manifestation in this world. And your mind is like a stream. It's a river. It could be a, a r- tiny little trickle. And you see people whose minds are a little trickle. You know, there's not a whole lot there. And then you see people whose minds are like a freaking torrential rapid, you know, with just all sorts of eddies and rocks and danger. And those are the chaotic. That was you for a while. And you see people whose minds are like the depths of the ocean, just completely pure, clear, deep, undisturbed, and powerful. And so left to its own devices, your mind is trained by your environment until you wake up and you recognize that you have the capacity to train it, which is what you did when you looked in the mirror. And then you take responsibility for training that. And that's like shaping the banks of the river, you know, of your mind. And then also determining what kind of quality of water you're going to allow into that river. Right. And so the water is in the content and the ideas and the people. It's almost like you dam up the old shitty water that was coming into the river of your mind, which is the negative people, network news, negative thinking, and also memories that you are obsessing about, about who you are and what you are. And that's the, the old false identity. And then you create a pathway to, you know, filling it up with new, fresh water, clear thinking, new ideas, new beliefs, new people. And within a short order of time, you've completely rerouted and transformed the river of your mind, which then transforms your body, transforms your relationships, transforms the entire directionality of your life. I love so much that you use the word create, because I think the greatest thing that I understood was the ability to bring to fruition the dreams that I had, to create them, to create my body, my mind, my environment. A lot of that came through visualization. A lot of it came through meditation. But without having the clarity of those two things combined with action, nothing would have been different. Here's what was really interesting. At 27 years old, I realized I had zero confidence. I didn't believe in myself in any capacity. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. That's because you were living a false story. Yes. Your belief was built on that identity. When you step away from that story, then you're facing the unknown, and so that's fearful, and so you lack confidence. So until you step into the unknown and start building the new structures of the new identity, you're going to have that lack of confidence. But that's also the beauty of it. One of the great secrets to living an extraordinary life, a creative life, is to be comfortable with that unknown, to be always stepping into unknown territory and to not fear it, but to turn the fear into excitement and anticipation and just the pure creative force, which is the mind, the ability to just absolutely create whatever you want in alignment with what your you know, calling or dreams are you know, from your higher self. And it was creating values in my life, deciding what words represented me, understanding the power of words, leveraging those words as a filter for the decisions that I was making, honesty, kindness, 
leadership, self-actualization, and thinking about everything that I did in my life filtering through those words to help me determine if I was making the right or wrong decisions for myself. And the more that I did that, the more I actually started to pay attention to the environment around me and realized that so many times it was a collision of values with other human beings that was in my way. And more so, I would allow, because it felt necessary to placate so that I had companionship and friendship, I would allow myself to break my own values for significance. And when I understood that, everything changed. And one of the really hard parts about this journey that I don't envy that people have to go through, but I'm sure you will understand this, is that as you grow and you change, there are people who are not going to like it or are going to want you to be the version of you that you used to be. Because they're using you in some way or, or they get benefit for you to stay that way. It helps their psyche to see you suffer. It does. And that's one of the really unfortunate truths about life. And that could be your own parents your best friends, your wife. And you have to be willing to, to stick to your guns and say, this is who I am and this is my path because that's ownership and that's agency. And that's the greatest sense of healing in this journey, Mark, as I look at myself in the mirror today, man, and I'm okay with the reflection. Yeah. I just want to double click for a second on what you said there. You know, there's three ways to live or four ways, dependent, independent, codependent, or mutually interdependent. Obviously, the fourth one is the healthiest, right? That's what we're seeking, which is meaning that you have your autonomy and freedom, but you can collaborate in a mutually interdependent way to, you know, because we, we can rely on other people. This is great teamwork, right? And you can look at your family and your parents as part of that team if they're healthy and interdependent. Otherwise, what so often happens, especially uh, if you grow up in a dysfunctional environment, dysfunctional family is you end up in a codependent or a dependent relationship. And codependence is just rampant in our culture. And codependence is unhealthy because you give up your autonomy to someone else and they give up some of their autonomy to you. And you think it's, oh, yeah, you know, and you kind of fit together sometimes like a hand in the glove and it works. Or sometimes it's more like it's like push ball, push ball, push ball. But it's still unhealthy and it, it absorbs an enormous amount of energy and it's all negative, even if you don't recognize it because you've given up a lot of your autonomy. And in fact, you could also say that we have individually and culturally a codependent relationship with the government or the church, because they've basically inserted themselves and said, you need me, you need to be dependent upon me. And so you give up a lot of your autonomy to them. And then you can't live free when you do that. Now you can live in society and take, you know, enjoy the benefits that government offers, such as, you know, policing and clean roads and stuff like that. Some of the things we take for granted in our country, and all you got to do is go to Egypt or Syria or somewhere else to realize, wow, those aren't normal <laughs> around the world, right? You can enjoy the benefits in an interdependent relationship with a little bit of wisdom and work, which you've done. I just wanted to kind of talk through that because I think it's something that I haven't thought a lot about, but we are a culture of codependence. And that means if you are in that manner where you've given up your autonomy to a government or to a church and you're not thinking clearly for yourself or to, and some people will be like, what are you talking about? I love my church. I'm like, great. You should, but be free of the dogma and the doctrine to explore other ideas and explore your own spirituality and find God within because it's there, right? Whatever your concept of God is, we emanate from that. You know, to me, people could say, well, that's a, a belief. And I was like, no, that's reality. <laughs> that's lived reality, right? So live the reality to prove it to yourself. I think you're spot on because the greatest sense of freedom, again, is, is about autonomy, is your willingness to stand on your own two feet and say, this is who I am. 
despite the criticism, despite cancel culture, despite whatever it is that's in front of you that says no. And, you know, growing up, it's really fascinating when you really dive into causation and correlation because you you look at these experiences of youth right now. You could have my case where it's overt and covert trauma. It's really right there. You can't run from it. But then you're like in third grade and you're coloring the house and you make the sun purple and Miss Smith comes up to you and chastises you in maybe a gentle way, right, in front of the entire class. And what happens is suddenly your brain goes, wait a second, I thought it was okay to make the moon purple, but everyone laughed at me. And your, your reptilian brain goes, well, I'm going to get ostracized from the community and that's dangerous. And so now instead of showing up, creating your art, maybe standing on stages or having a podcast or whatever it is that brings you joy, the fear of criticism is so deep in you. Because of that one experience, and it could be something so small that in passing, and Miss Smith will never remember that that happened, but it is embedded in your psyche for life. And until you can step through and understand and acknowledge how you got to where you are, you're never going to be able to get to where you want to go. And I spent so much of my life stuffing it down, hiding from it, running from it, but it's there. And the darkness will always catch up with you. But what's really, really beautiful is like, think about a new day right? It starts in the dark and then eventually there's light. But if you're unwilling to acknowledge that, then you're ever going to be forever going to be trapped. And that to me is so dangerous because it leads down this path of regret. And my greatest fear in life is dying with regret, a life unlived. And I think to myself every single day, like, how do you just show up? It's hard. It's difficult. It's grimy. It's ugly. It's painful. Life is suffering sometimes. Sometimes, man, it's fucking beautiful. And it's amazing. And you get to connect with incredible human beings. And if you're willing to look for that light, even if it's just a small glimmer and the tunnel feels like it's insurmountable, that you take a step towards that light every single day, I promise you on a long enough timeline, you will stand in it. You will. And you will have no regrets. And that, that's a great driving principle, you know, to be at the end and not have any regrets. And so what does that mean? You don't wait until the end and then try to eradicate those regrets. You do it right now. Right. Start working on eradicating regrets. And then once you do that, then you work on not accumulating regrets. The human spirit is driven toward freedom, right? Driven toward full expression of its creative force and creative energy and dharma or calling. And anything that stands in the way is eliminating. It's a contraction. I came across a quote this morning from Lao Tzu, right? The author of Tao Te Ching. Care about what other people think and you'll always be their prisoner. You know, especially influencers like us or others. Everybody, they're all worried about in social media. You're all worried about what everyone thinks about them. And therefore, they're prisoners to other people's opinions. And that contracts them and takes them away from their full autonomy and freedom. And so they're not going to feel the full creative expression and joy. And they're going to have regrets. So don't do that. Right. Yeah. And especially not on social. I mean, you've been on social as long as I have. Like, I'm sure you've been canceled. I've been canceled. Not going to stop me. You're not going to stop me. I'm uncounselable because I believe in the words that I'm saying with conviction. I think that if you can get to that place in your life and recognize like not everybody's going to like you, it's fine. The most important thing is when you stand in front of that mirror that you like you, that you hold your truth, that it's self-evident that you are created to be the person you are, and that if you're willing to stand in that truth, it's incredible what happens. Mark, you had the same experience. You had a decision to make that changed your life forever. And had you not made that decision, we would not be here. You would be a CPA 
maybe an alcoholic, maybe miserable, having a, a midlife crisis, right? Whatever that thing is, but you stood in front of that sign and you said, yes, this is for me. And you honored that. And that is life. Honor your truth. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if people around you judge you and say you're a crazy person. Dude, when I left that Fortune 10 company, everyone around me said, you're never going to be successful again, man. This is a once in a lifetime shot. You're insane to walk away from this. I mean, I was making more money than people with like PhDs and master's degrees, man. And I come from nothing. And everyone said, you're never going to make it again. And I said to myself, I don't give a shit what you think. I'm going to trust and bet on myself. I love it. Yeah, we got to wrap this up. But one thing you said is just absolutely profound is you got to face your truth, but it might be uncomfortable. And I would propose that moving toward capital T truth is always uncomfortable because culture doesn't want you to go there. They want you to stay in your little box. But if you want to be happy, you want to fulfill your creative yearning, your spiritual drive, you have to move toward that truth and get comfortable with that discomfort until it becomes joyful. I really appreciate you, Michael. What a, what a brilliant interview you are. It's so cool to hear your story and, and what an inspiration you, know, you are for everybody, not just people who, you know, who've gone through that extreme trauma like you have and are looking for answers, but for everybody. If you can do it, then anybody can do it. Thank you. And it's an honor to be here with you. And you know, again, I, I have so much admiration for you because even from a million miles away, you played a role in this journey just by being willing to share your truth. Yeah, who yeah. Where can people find more about you? Where do you want to, you know, folks to kind of engage or connect with you? I'm everywhere at Michael Unbroken on social. You can check out the Think Unbroken podcast, and you can also read my first book absolutely for free. You go to book.thinkunbroken.com. You can download it. It's zero dollars. If you want to buy a copy, go for it. I literally don't care. My mission is to end generational trauma in my lifetime through education and information. So that's where you can find me. Perfect. Thanks, Michael. Wow, that was an incredibly inspiring episode with Michael Anthony, or aka Michael Unbroken. What an interesting fellow. I mean, wow. I'm going to be on his podcast, so I'm really excited to talk to him. You can find his podcast at Unbroken or Michael Unbroken Podcast. Show notes and transcripts are up on markdevine.com and the video at our YouTube channel, markdevine.com slash YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at RealMarkDevine and Instagram and Facebook. Twitter is real is just markdevine. You can find me on LinkedIn and, of course, send me questions or guest ideas or just, you know, a shout out. Plug for the new newsletter, Divine Inspiration. If you're not on the newsletter subscription list, please consider doing so by going to markdivine.com to subscribe. Every week on Tuesdays, I'll send out a synopsis of the week's uh, Mark Divine show, as well as my blog, as well as the book I'm reading, and a little bit about that, and also a habit or interesting things that come across my desk. Special shout out to my amazing team, Jeff Haskell, Jason Sanderson, Amy Jerkowitz, and Melinda Hershey, who helped produce this podcast and bring incredible guests to you like Michael every week. Reviews and ratings are extremely invaluable. So if you haven't rated or reviewed the show, please consider doing so at Apple or wherever you listen to this podcast. World's changing fast and uh, it seems to be chaotic and dangerous and full of uh, negative things, people, places, news, and all that is perception. And the reality is that you make it what you want to be. So thanks for being part of that process. If we could scale positivity, connection, inclusiveness, and compassion, then the world will look differently to other people as well. So let's do that. And uh, this podcast is part of that. So please share it. And I uh, thank you for being a listener. Until next time, be unbroken. Yeah.